This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. This is the second part of our episode on narrative, identity, meaning in sport, and creative qualitative methods with Dr. Katrina Douglas. Katrina is a professor at the University of West London, a senior research fellow at Leeds Beckett University, and a visiting professor at the University of Coimbra. She has been one of the pioneers in the narrative study of athletes' lives, and this work is the focus of our conversation. Her narrative typology of performance, discovery, and relational narratives of sport, developed together with Dr. David Carles, has been a foundation for a number of studies that have followed. Having played elite and professional sport for 20 years, Katrina has also published autoethnographic studies which provide insight on her own negotiations of personal meaning of sport and how to resist the dominant narratives about elite athletes that circulate in our culture. Katrina has also had an important contribution to advancing arts-based and creative qualitative methods, and we will hear about this more today. In addition to journal articles and academic books, her work has been published in the form of films, poems, documentaries, songs, and stories. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Yeah, but if I challenge you, couldn't we say that nowadays, especially when the dual career has become kind of quite influential discourse, so the idea that athletes need to be combining school and, and sport at the same time. So now it could be even more dominant idea that you are not allowed to be just an athlete, but you also have to be a student and you need to get your education at the same time. So it's becoming another form of dominant narrative telling you that you have to have at least these two identities. I'm really glad you've picked that up. Um, I work for the National Anti-Doping Panel, who are um, a group of arbiters who sit and hear the cases of athletes who have been uh, found guilty of committing an anti-doping offence and want to appeal their ban. And I remember a few years ago, I sat on a hearing panel and there's three of us, a QC and two former athletes who have uh, had representative histories in their sport career. So we sit as a three-person panel to hear the UK anti-doping and the athlete's defence. And this particular athlete was at a really well-known university in the UK, one of the best universities you could go and was on their top team in a particular sport. And this particular athlete 
the cohort that he was in was studying all night in the library and they all took a tablet so they wouldn't sleep so that they could get their assignment in at five o'clock in the morning and then this athlete got on a coach and went to a particular sport European sporting event and won it and he was tested afterwards and banned for four years he lost his scholarship to the university he lost his place in the particular sport I won't go into specifics but he was doing what he was supposed to do all of it the learning and the sport and I just felt just do the sport just just do the sport for now why push yourself so much in the education as well that you have to attain such a high standard in that you, you, you almost can't win. I felt, that, I felt that this athlete was under too much pressure to try and perform in both of those things. And I'm really uncomfortable about it. The, the dual career, in theory, it sounds great. But in practice, I think there's a lot of problems with it. Because exactly as you're saying, we, spe we expect athletes to perform in both of these areas now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Those are some of the questions that I've been looking into as well and it seems to be especially with the young women who often really put effort into both of them so they want to be perfect in everything but they also want to have like active social life and you know probably you cannot do everything at the same time up to you know perfection yeah well I think there's I'm, I'm noticing it now with COVID in the UK and of course children develop well at school but the narrative that's in the newspapers and also when I've heard some young people interviewed is my life is going to be ruined because I haven't been at school this last year now I, I don't see how <laughs> it doesn't have to be we can learn in lots of different ways there's the hidden curriculum and if everyone across the world is off school well It's a level playing field. So we don't have to say, well, you're disadvantaged. There have been advantages to being home with your family. And um, going back to my life, my father would take me out of school to, for family events. He couldn't necessarily have holidays during school times. So he'd take us out. Did I, was it affect, did it affect my, my education? Well, I might have done better in my English exam, but does that really matter now? So we have to see that you know life isn't just about education. It's about our relationships. It's about understanding the world and what we're doing. And so I feel everything is getting too cemented and too firm. And people aren't allowed to, to grow and develop in a time that's best for them. I, th I remember again my father saying, oh, you're probably a late developer. And... I don't know exactly what that meant, but it gave me a narrative that it, I didn't have to start playing golf when I was five. I could start when I was 17. And lots of people said to me when I was starting at 17, oh, you're too old. You, you, you know, I remember someone at the golf club at Long Ashton saying, who do you think you are? You know, you can't pitch up here and say you're going to become a professional golfer. That's not how it works. You've got to be talent ID spotted at five and you've got to be on this particular pathway. Mm. So it can work that way, but it can also work lots of different ways that we're not allowing enough experimentation. And what I think 
for those of us that don't follow the gender, you know, the typical pathway, we develop other sides. So I was a very creative player. I learned how to play shots because I taught myself. So there's strengths and weaknesses, and we, we always need the alternative. If, there's, if, the, if someone says, this is the way, as researchers, we need to say, well, who are we silencing? You know, where's the other voice? You know, we need to listen out for those that are being silenced and turned off and hidden because that will enrich the whole batch, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm conscious as time. So <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm very curious at hearing your, your thoughts on the developments of the narrative study of athletes' lives and, and identity in sport and those things. So it's about 15 years since you first published on your typology and so many people have used that and, and also build upon that. So what are your thoughts on kind of the current state where we are in this line of research and what are the things that are exciting for you and where you would like us to see uh, us to be moving forward as a community of researchers in this area? Well, you're exciting. <laughs> your, your research is exciting. Um, I love your uh, meaningful sport because I think if I've spoken to a few athletes and there was last year I was invited to do a presentation at a conference in Scotland and there was a very well-known rugby player who had attempted suicide and had been going through therapy and had come at the other side and was now doing a PhD into mental health and welfare in elite sport. So one of the things I hope that our work has contributed to is taken welfare of athletes really seriously and their, their lives beyond sport and alongside sport. And what this athlete was, he was a rugby player. And I, I said, what I found in our research, the, the, the relation and the narratives, if people have said it, You know, the reason they get into sport is for the relationships. And he said, that's exactly, that's me. And he was, it was nice to have an actual person <laughs> saying that at a conference where he presented his search on, on mental health. And he said, what I missed was the blokes, the guys being with them. And I've heard other rugby players saying, you know, what you feel physically when you play rugby is the other men around you and you feel that bond with them. And I miss that. It's the relationships that you build in sport. So for me, there's lots about sport that is silenced because we talk about trophies. And if you value a relationship, winning a medal isn't going to improve that relationship. And if you've had a good relationship with your dad or your life, uh, it's something really, really important. And we need to relish and value those things in our lives and in our stories and put them on a, a level playing field with the trophies and the, the tournament wins and all of those things. And there just seems to me at the moment a bit too much space given to the, the wins and the trophies and the, the, the statistics. Mm. But what I see with you know the things that you're doing and other researchers You're taking it forward, looking at the dual career, but also prob problematizing that. And you're looking at the stories that women and that men have offered to them, the gendered type of stories, and trying to now break those open and show 
the trouble and the problems with those. So hopefully going forward, we can begin to, what I would like is for everybody to be a bit more reflective about the stories that they tell, the stories that they're uh, cemented in, and what would it be like and feel like to tell a different story? What would, what would we need to do to allow athletes to have more change, you know, not just get cemented in one? And I know when I started my PhD, when I told you about that decision, my father said, it's your choice. When I think at the beginning of my PhD, I thought that I had sole choice. At the end of my PhD, I thought, well, no, I can't because I had such a good relationship with my dad and I knew he liked sport. And he's saying, would you like to leave school and play sport? Of course I do that because of my relationship with him. And if he said, do you want to become a saxophone player? I would have said, yeah, I'll give it a go. Or if he just said, would you like to go and climb a mountain? Yes, I'll give it a go because of the relationship. So if we don't maintain the relationships in athletes' lives, I think their lives are impoverished and our communities are impoverished. So we want to build strong communities where we build links and relationships with people and not put ourselves on pedestals as if we're above people. You know, that worries me. I'm not anything special. I'm here because I've been fortunate and lots of people have put into my life. And it's been enriched because of what lots of other people have done. So let's see together what can we offer athletes and, and, and young, especially young athletes coming up. What stories can we offer them that will inspire them and not cement or reduce their life if something happens to them? And they, if they want to go out of sport, that's OK. And they want to stay in, that's OK. How can we help them? nurture and grow and see their lives beyond the sport career <laughs> you know, the sport career is at the end or we go to the next batch now no they're they're carrying on in their lives uh, with the the way that they are being in the world so it's the um the moral compass that we have in our lives i hope that we can maybe help athletes think about those philosophical things you know rather than don't you don't have to do anything i'll take care of all of that you just go and hit golf balls no, we say to young people, what do we do about all these things? Join us in the conversations and the thinking about them. And, you know, when it's the right time at nine o'clock in the morning, you can go and do your training and then come back and help us with all these issues that we face in, in our communities. Otherwise, athletes get sidelined outside the conversation. We need to, you know, we all need to be in the conversation. Yeah, I think one of the important things that, when you have been doing this work is that you are certainly not just talking to academics and, and you are not just <laughs> writing journal articles, although you are being very productive in that too. But so maybe we can finish up. We have a few minutes time and I thought it would be really fun to be talking about this other dimension of, of your work, which is this very creative arts-based research and the ways that you communicate your findings also in poems and songs, films, all, all these different things. And I think it's very inspirational for qualitative researchers that, you know, you can do all these different things and you can be very creative with that. So maybe just share a little bit of the different things you are doing. So you have a book coming out with David Carlos and, and a few other things and just share us a bit of inspiration, yeah. 
hoping to slow this down with the book. It's doing arts-based research, and I hopefully it will be out next year, but we're a bit behind with that at the moment, just the way this year has gone. Yeah. Uh, I suppose this comes down to my basic belief about what human beings are. I think we are more than our words. We're, we are creative beings. And I think research has shown that what happens when children go to school is their creativity gets knocked out of them. So we, we, and when I go to the beach, I see everybody going on their holidays and then they're creating sandcastles and mermaids out of the sand and putting seaweed on the head. So we are creative beings, but sometimes people are frightened to show their creativity because the culture that's around them will be critical. So a lot of academics... They, they won't use arts-based research because they're frightened that people will, what, you know, who are you to write a poem? Who are you to write? You can't write a song. You've got to be trained to do all of that. So, yes, there's a certain amount of truth that the more you practice any skill, golf, cooking, poetry, you will improve it. But there's a, a belief that I have is that we can all do this. So when I was doing my PhD, I experimented with poetry. Uh, and I used a very simple, very simple way of working with athletes' transcripts to see what happened. And I did one, and I went back to the athlete, and I said, I know that I've done your life story, but I've got these four poems. Can I read them to you? And I read the first one over the phone, this was, and there was this big silence. And I was thinking, oh, no, she probably thinks it's really awful. And so, you know, what earth are you doing, Katrina? That's terrible. And she didn't. She said... That's amazing. That's looking like looking in a mirror for the first time. I've seen things about my life I've never seen before. And I read her the next and the next, and then I sent them to her. And so the reason I, I have continued to use arts-based methods, poetry, songs, stories, is because the response of people to the poem, not because I'm a great poet or storyteller or musician, but because of sometimes when I create something, the response of that individual or people like that has been so profound. And so David and I have been trying to understand, well, what is it in the poems that does something that the journal article doesn't do? And I suppose the sort of the conclusions that we've come to is that there's always more from, from meeting someone that you can't get in that journal article, the format doesn't allow the spirit of the person, the spontaneity, the, uh, the, the, the things that can't be said. And what the arts bring are all the things that we can't say, but we feel. So as human beings, we have our emotions. And if we leave our emotions out of the research report, well, then we're doing a disservice to humanity and to that individual. So I don't think we necessarily have all the answers, but we've been doing this alongside the sort of mainstream methods. And gradually over the years, it's become so enmeshed that I wouldn't, I couldn't ever really see myself doing a piece of research without allowing my whole self to be taken in. And, and when I do that, I, I write poetries, I write stories, I write music, and it depends, each one's different. And I have been profoundly changed by the songs that I've sung from my research and the poems that I've read. I've been changed too. And it's opened up things. And 
the the first time I did this was going back to that golfer and it was a poem called my dad and my PhD research was trying to understand the motives of women in high performance sport multiple tournament winners how did you get in what did it mean to you and and this is that poem and it's called my dad and it answers all those questions dad was a king golfer seemed the natural thing to do my dad was out playing golf and that's what I wanted to do I got a little club cut down I'd have been about four I remember being chuffed to bits playing three holes six then nine I like playing golf and I like being with my dad. Such a sense of achievement, feeling the golf on your club. First, there were the girls' events. I was 10 or so. Lady said to my dad, she must have a go, an opportunity to play in competition. I played, but didn't like it. At the time, I played for dad. Played my heart out for my dad. It was for him. We were really close. Doesn't mean I didn't love my mother. My dad died in 94. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't do it for myself. I'd never done it for myself. Golf for me was my dad's pleasure and his pleasure was enough. Pat on the back, handshake. That was me winning. That's what I got. So in one minute, I can talk about one woman's motive and relationship with her dad. That If I was going to write that into a research report or something, <laughs> I couldn't carry my PhD around with me, but I can carry a poem. And I've read that poem all over the world in all sorts of circumstances and often when I'm doing research. And I, I read it when I was doing some uh, research with injured, sick and wounded soldiers. And there was a group that I was working with and they said, would you present your research? I, I, I did that poem and they were all in tears. <laughs> it's, you know, Marines, they were like the, the SAS and they were... They said, we're just so speechless. Many of them had daughters and they'd never thought and seen the world from their daughter's uh, point of view before. So it's been really profound. Uh, and because I've had, or David and I have had these responses, it's made us realize, well, we need to do these things. We need not to just publish in peer reviewed journals. We need to share our research. This is meaningful to the people that we're doing the research with, to their parents, to their families. Um, the first film that we put on YouTube was called The Long Run. And David showed it in a class. And one of the students there, like the man in the film, was having mental health issues. And in the film, the man said he changed his medication. The student went to his doctor and asked him to relook at his medication because he wasn't able to do any sport at all. He changed his medication like the man in the film. He was able to start running and get healthy again and was able to go on and do a PhD. So we've heard just amazing stories of people seeing the films and it be really real to them. So in terms of our research being accessible and tearing the boundaries around and not just writing in journals and writing in inaccessible ways, films people can get at, poems people can get at stories people can read and understand so we don't need experts telling them <laughs> we just share it with them and they make their own minds up so for me it's much more democratic way for us to do our work as researchers and, and that, that I find inspiring and I think it's so important for having this sense that we are doing meaningful work as researchers that we can see that it can make a difference in the world it's not just the article peer-reviewed 
behind the paywall that two people are going to read. I think it's so important and so inspiring for for so many researchers as well. And I'll certainly link a few of your things that you've done in the show notes so people can see and, and hear and, and read themselves. So yeah, thank you so much, Katrina. I've I really enjoyed our conversation. It's been really lovely to spend some time with you, Nora. Really has. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes so be sure to tune in thank you all for your support and have a great day